Good morning, everyone. Welcome to, this is the third week in our series on the subject of the atonement. And I really have thoroughly enjoyed the study into the cross of Jesus Christ and the achievement of the cross. You know, if you look at the gospels, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you add up all of those chapters and all of those four gospels, these eyewitness accounts of Jesus, a third of all the gospels is spent on just one week of Jesus's life. I mean, think about the importance of that, of all the things they could to really just focus on. They focus a third of their writings upon one week of Jesus's life. It's because what Jesus accomplished in that one week is, is, is it's uh, cosmic. It, it changed the world. It changed everything about the world. And, and that's why we are studying this topic called atonement. Because if a third of the gospels talk about the cross and the achievement of the cross, how much more we as believers on the other side of that atonement should think and meditate on what exactly Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And so we've been looking at that. What achievements has he accomplished and what problems did he solve on the cross? So we've looked at the problem of being separated uh, and we've looked at the problem of the, of the cost of sin. And today we are going to focus on a very important aspect of the atonement. And you can kind of sum it all up in one word and it's this word, substitute, substitution. Jesus came as a substitute on our behalf. And we're gonna look at why that is important. So today, as we, as we look at this, I want you to think, you know, a lot of times when we think about our relationship with God, we think of like our very, this is our personal, private relationship with God. It's very private, it's very personalized. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. He is your personal Lord and Savior. You do have a genuine uh, one-of-a-kind relationship with Him. But today I want us for a moment to think of God, not in a private, personal way, but I want us to think of God in a more cosmic way. How does God rule and govern the earth? What is his relationship to his creation? And how does he rule and how does he govern it? And so, you know, back in school, we used to have to take a class called civics. Does anybody remember civics class? And when you go to civics class, you're learning one thing uh, about America, about the United States. And it's really, how does our government work? How did the founding fathers set up the government? What is the government's relationship to us and how does it affect us? And, and so we learn in school, let's just do, can we go back to civics class just for a second, just for a moment? We learn in civics class that our government is made up of three distinct powers, right? You got the legislative branch, you got the judicial branch, and you got the executive branch. So let's just brush up on that really quick. The first is the legislative branch. And what does the legislative branch do? They have the power to enact, create, and change existing laws. The legislative branch is Congress, right? They are the ones that write bills in which after a majority vote in both the House and the Senate and the signature of a president, that a bill can then become a law. So basically the legislative branch are the law givers, 
of our government. All right, the next branch is the judicial branch. These are the federal courts in the judicial branch. They have the power to interpret the law and determine the constitutionality of a law and how to apply it to individual cases and to punish those who break the law. So Article 3 of the Constitution of the United States guarantees that every person accused of wrongdoing has the right to a fair trial before a competent judge and a jury of one's peers, okay? I know, hang with me here. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. All right, and the last of the three branches is the executive branch, right? This is the president and the vice president and those that they appoint. And so the power of the executive branch is vested to the president of the United States who acts as the head of state. He is the commander in chief of the armed forces. The president is responsible for implementing and enforcing the laws. Okay, so they implement and they enforce the laws. He can give executive orders. He can uh, clarify exist, uh, and further existing laws. And the president also has the power to extend pardons and clemencies for federal crimes. All right, so there you go. We have, <laughs> we have the legislative branch who makes laws. We have the judicial branch who uh, interprets the law. And then we have the executive branch who executes the law. All right, so that's how the American government works. But how does God govern the earth? This is what's unique about God, okay? And I love Isaiah 33, 22. Look at this scripture. It tells us, look, all three branches of government, we find it right here in Isaiah 33:22. It says this, for the Lord is our judge. There's a judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver. There's the legislative branch. The Lord is our king. There's our executive branch. And he will save us. So God stands in a unique position. He is all three powers wrapped up in one. God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. And God is the king. He's the president who's over it all. God is unique. He's holy. There's no one like him. Everything begins and ends with him. You know, the, the three branches were, were made by our founding fathers as checks and balances against certain powers and no one getting too powerful. Well, look, God has no checks and balances. He's all three powers wrapped up into one. What he say, says goes, he has the final word on all things. He's the first and the last. He has made the law. He is judging the law, those under the law. And he has the executive power to do whatever he wants. So for just a brief few minutes, I want us to look at these three things. And, and I want us to look at God as the lawgiver, God as the judge, and God as the king. So according to Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition God gave 613 laws in the Old Testament. Now, before you freak out about 613 laws, just remember, and I want you to know that Congress since 1789 has enacted more than 30,000 statutes. That's a lot of statutes. That's a lot of laws. Uh, I mean, too many to count, too many to keep up with. So if you're freaking out about 613, guess what? You live in a nation where there's over 30,000 different statutes that have been enacted. And actually, my brother-in-law, he's a lawyer, and I was talking with him about this. And he said that Americans violate 
uh, or they commit felonies every single year and they don't even realize it. They don't even know it because that's how many laws we have. So uh, that's why you need a good lawyer. You need someone to help you uh, because you never know, you know, you shouldn't have torn that tag off that mattress or you shouldn't be illegally selling snakehead fish because there are criminal laws against those two things and you could end up in jail, believe it or not. So But what I love about God is God, yes, there are 613 laws, but then he simplifies it in a lot of ways. He gives us 10, the big 10, right? The 10 commandments. And then Jesus comes along and he makes it even more simpler. He gives us two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Man, Jesus really simplifies things. That's what I love about Jesus is that he is a great simplifier. But God... God is the lawgiver. From the beginning, God gives laws to abide by. Think about it. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. God creates Adam. Adam is God's son. And he gives Adam this good world. He creates this such a good world. And, and, and he gives it to Adam. And he said, Adam, this is all yours. I, I want to be in relationship with you. I want, to, I want you to be a co-ruler, an heir with me. Like, This all belongs to you. I'm giving you authority over this, but I do have one command for you, Adam. You can have all that you see except this one tree. Don't touch it, don't eat it, or else there will come consequences. The Lord says, surely you will die if you touch this or eat of its fruit. So Adam, the son of God, what happens? He fails (laughs) and he fails miserably. And then, Go, go much later down the road, we read in Exodus that God takes Moses up on a mountain called Mount Sinai and he gloriously and miraculously delivers uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he strikes a covenant with the people of Israel. He takes them and he adopts them as his chosen son. You can read in Exodus 4.23, just like God calls Adam his son, God now turns around and calls Israel. He says, you are my only son. He adopts him and brings him in. He says, I'm gonna be your God, but I'm gonna make a covenant with you, Adam. And in in this covenant, there are rules, there are commands. If you live by this covenant, you will be so blessed. You can read the blessings of the covenant. Amazing blessings. You're gonna be wealthy. You're gonna be healthy. You're gonna be prosperous. I mean, such amazing blessings come with the covenant that God makes. But he says, beware. If you do not follow the commands, if you break the laws I'm giving you, then it will be horrific. It'll be terrifying. There are consequences and they don't call them consequences. Read Deuteronomy 28 and 29. They're called curses. He says, these are the curses. If you do not abide by the commands, by the covenant I'm making with you. And of course we know Israel failed. Adam fails to be the true son of God. And then Israel fails to be the true son of God. They fail so terribly they fail. God even says, I, Israel, I took people out of the land that were, and I gave you their land and I took them out because they were so bad. They were so horrific. And I put you there and I gave you this covenant to live by and you broke every covenant. And in fact, you are worse than the people that were there before you. This is how bad you have failed, Israel. Adam failed. Israel failed, and I want to tell you today, you and I, we have failed. We have failed to live up to God's commands. We have failed to live up 
to the standard that he has set. And sometimes we think we haven't failed. Sometimes we don't realize, uh, maybe we think we're better off than we really are. I like what Ray Comfort does. I don't know if you ever heard of a man named Ray Comfort, but he likes to give people the good person test. He'll walk up to someone and he'll say, hey, hey, what's your name? And they'll say their name and say, you, are you a good person? And the person will say, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good guy. And then Ray begins to ask questions. He said, have you ever told a lie? And guys, well, yeah, I guess I have told a lie. So what does that make you? Well, I guess that makes me a liar. <laughs> he said, have you ever stolen something? Well, yes, sir, I have. I said, what does that make you? I, well, I guess that makes me a thief. And then he says, well, Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, then you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever done that? And the person will say, well, yeah, plenty of times. And then Ray will say, what's your name? He said, well, my name's, my name's Orem. Well, by your own admission, Orem, you're a lying, thieving adulterer at heart, and you have to face God on judgment day. What are you going to do about that? And, and then for people, the reality sets in, like, we think we're so good. We think we haven't failed. But in reality, when you look at God's judgments, when you look at God's commandments and his moral law, we have failed time and time again. And so when we realize we have failed, we have one or two options that we can do. And one is I think that's happening right now is what we try to do is instead of thinking there's something wrong with us, we in turn think there's actually something wrong with God's commandments. We think there's, that we should change God's commandments. We should make God's commandments conform to our image and what we say is right. Instead of us coming up underneath the scriptures and letting the scriptures form us and say, no, 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 we're not over the scriptures. We're under the scriptures. They have authority over us. This is God's word. This is God's good word. We try to change his commandments or we try to lessen them and say, oh, that's not really what God means. And, and listen, the commands of God, his judgments, they're good, they're moral, they are the standard. And for whatever reason, people think that they can lower the standard. Look at this ruler, you see this ruler right here? 12 inches will always be one foot. No matter what, 12 inches is one foot. We can't say, we can't lessen the standard and say, well, the new foot is just 10 inches, we'll cut off this much. There's the new foot. Just to, no, no, no. God's word is the standard, his commands. And we cannot lessen, just because we can't live up to the standard doesn't mean we can lessen the standard. No, his word will always be right. His judgments are always true. We've broken God's laws time and time again. And when you break the law, you have to go before the judge. So God's the lawgiver. God's also the judge. Psalms 9, 7 through 8 says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. God is the judge of all mankind. He stands in a unique place. He's holy. There's no one like him. No one else is worthy enough to judge. He is perfect in all of his ways and his judgments are a reflection of his character. God has to be true to himself. As holy and righteous and good, God has to judge accordingly. That means God just can't look over sin. 
He can't just sweep sin under the rug as if it's never happened. In a moral universe like the one we live in, our actions matter and they cannot be overlooked. Now, deep down, everyone wants justice. Everyone wants things that are wrong to be made right. I mean, this is one of the biggest cries of our day right now is justice for all the injustice in the world. We know that there's injustice and we want someone to right those wrongs. But the truth is our justice system could never, ever right every wrong. And I'm not saying we shouldn't get involved in justice issues and try to right wrongs. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it is utterly impossible for a justice system to right every wrong because there's so much wrong. We don't have enough people in the justice system to right every wrong. There's only one who can rule justly and that's God and nothing goes unnoticed by him. Our actions will be judged. Not only our actions, but the reason why we did those actions will be judged. And God is a good judge. Now imagine if someone committed a heinous, terrible crime against your family. And the person who wronged your family goes before the judge and the judge looks at him and says, oh, well, when you committed this terrible, heinous crime, you were just having a bad day. You were just feeling a little down that day. You weren't having a good day. So listen, because I'm such a good judge, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna let you off the hook. I'm, such, I'm, I'm so good. I'm such a good judge. I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna bring justice to this situation. I'm gonna let you go for free. I'm gonna pardon you. <laughs> Would we consider that judge to be a good judge? Well, not if you're a family member of the one that's been wrong. No, that's a bad judge. He let he did not do justice. He let an offender go for free. You see, you've broken God's laws and we will all stand before God, the judge, and you are guilty in the high court of heaven. The court of human opinion will go, but the heavenly court, <laughs> the heavenly court, you will not escape. We'll all stand before God as the ruler and as the judge. So what are we gonna do when we stand before the king? When we stand before the ruler, we're judged guilty under his laws. What kind of verdict will he execute on us? God is not only the lawgiver and the judge, but he's also the ruler. God is king, God is sovereign. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell there within. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Everything is the Lord's, the world is. You know, I remember if you remember in Lion King, that awesome movie where Simba, the young prince is sitting there with his king Mufasa and they're looking out over the kingdom and Mufasa says, everything that the light touches is our kingdom. It's like, it's like an epic, uh, James Earl Jones. I mean, so epic, everything you see, Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Listen, everything that you see today, I promise you it belongs to the Lord. And it can seem right now that there are a lot of rulers in this world and there's a lot of bad things happening. The politics of our day are broken. The rulers of this day are broken and there's so much tragedy and injustice and it can be like, Lord, how could this be yours? How could this be yours? If this is yours, this is not good. And we have to do, what God's people have done for millennia now. We have to fix our eyes 
above the heavens and realize that God is king and God is going to rule and his reign and his purposes and his plans on the earth are going to come about. And he is patient right now with people. There are so many rebellious people against his rule and against his reign, but God is being full of grace because he wants to save them from the coming judgment. You know, there's a lot of people that think their word is final and what they say is gonna go. And a lot of people think that God's, this word is gonna pass away and they're, they're gonna change uh, what this word says. And I love what Psalm chapter two says. It's one of my favorite scriptures about Jesus or about God and Jesus being king. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I mean, that so much sounds like our day. We're trying to cast off this book. We're trying to cast off what God says is right and wrong. We're trying to, the rulers are casting off, it seems like the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. But I love what verse four says, he who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs because kings and kingdoms will all pass away. The things we worship and the things we idolize, they'll all pass away, but he will reign forever. God holds the keys to the kingdom. He has full executive power. He's going to execute his plans and his purposes on the earth. And anyone that stands in his way in the end will be dealt with decidedly. God is the lawgiver which we've broken all the laws. God is the judge whom we stand guilty before. And God is the king who can do with us as he wishes. And so now we come to Jesus. Now we come to this word substitute. What does Jesus do for us as a substitute? Number one, Jesus fulfills the law. Matthew 5, 17, it says, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. And anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus didn't come to do away with the standard. Jesus didn't come to, 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 to lessen the standard. You know, we're gonna make a foot only 10 inches now instead of 12 inches. No, Jesus came to main, maintain the standard and he came to fulfill the standard. You see, he comes as our substitute. And you see where Adam failed, Adam failed to rule with justice. Adam failed to be the true image of God. Jesus comes to show us what it looks like when someone truly lives a life committed and submitted to God. And Jesus came to be and do what the nation of Israel failed to do. They could not uphold their end of the covenant. Where they broke the covenant time and time again, Jesus walked out and lived and breathed the covenant and the prophets. 
Adam fails with the fruit, but when Jesus is tempted with food by Satan in the wilderness, when, when Satan tries to trick Jesus the same way he tricked Adam, Jesus looks at him and says, Satan, get behind me. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live on this earthly world's food source, but man lives by the very words that come from the mouth of the Lord. His word prevails. And the book of Numbers tells us that the Israelites were tested 10 times in the wilderness and they failed the test every single time. They were 0 for 10. And when Jesus was tested in the wilderness by Satan, he passes the test. He scores a 100. And now because Jesus passed the test, the Bible tells us that we are in Christ, that we vicariously can live our life through Christ. So his righteousness, his test score of 100 can become our own. We're no longer obligated to trying to fulfill the commandments of God and our own strength, but now we live through the power of the Holy Spirit and his grace empowers us to live holy lives. His test score is passed to us. We take his righteousness, but not only do we take his righteousness, he takes our sin. He takes our unrighteousness. He took our unrighteousness upon himself. Jesus takes our judgment. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it might be safe through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So you see, Jesus comes, he is the judge. He could judge anybody he wants to. He's, he's righteousness, but instead he allows judgment to come upon him. I read a poem and I'm gonna read it to you. It says, listen to this. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing or with shame, but with belligerence. They said, how can God judge us? He can know, what does he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. Another group of an African-American boy, uh, he lowered his collar. He said, what about this? He demanded showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime, but being black. Another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. And she said, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering permitted in the world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where there was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each group sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, an African-American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic. In the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. And at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could judge them, before he was qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was this, that God would be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think he's out of his mind. 
Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die so there can be no doubt that he has died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. Each leader announced his portion of the sentence. Loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one moved for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. You see, Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The judge was judged in our place at Calvary and raised victorious over sin and death whose light will all be judged at the end of our lives. He took judgment upon himself so we would not have to stand condemned. And lastly, Jesus rules by serving. Yes, he is the king of the world. Jesus once told his disciples, the leaders of this world, they like to use their authority and their power to be on top and to lord it over people. But I don't come like that. I came to serve and to give my life so that you could have life. Jesus came to serve. Where did he get that idea from? Jesus would have known the scriptures, the Old Testament very well. It would have been a huge part of his life. And I believe that Jesus would have many times read through the books of Isaiah and that there was a servant in the book of Isaiah. We find it in Isaiah 53. It's called the suffering servant. And this is what Jesus patterned his life after. It's what Jesus patterned his ministry after. It was really a prophecy about him. It was his calling. He came to be a substitute. That's what we're talking about today. No less than 13 times in Isaiah 53 do we find words for substitution. I actually want to read this for you today. I want you to just let these words go into your heart and your spirit today. Isaiah 53, it says, who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom was the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears and is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and though there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, he has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's how Jesus came and ruled. He came by offering his life a substitute, by living out what we could not live out and then dying the death that we deserved. He came and he did that for us. And I wanna read one more quote to you today because I think it applies to what we're talking about. You know, the president, he has one of his powers as executive is he has the power of the pardon. He has the power to release someone from their sentence. And this is from a Supreme Court ruling from uh, the last name Garland, a Supreme Court ruling. It says, the inquiry arises as to the effect and operation of a pardon. And on this point, all the authorities concur. A pardon reaches both the punishment prescribed for the offense and the guilt of the offender. And when the pardon is full, it releases the punishment and blots out the existence of the guilt so that in the eye of the law, the offender is as innocent as if he had never committed the offense. If granted before conviction, it prevents any of the penalties and disabilities consequent upon conviction from attaching. If granted after conviction, it removes the penalties and disabilities and restores him to all his civil rights. It makes him, as it were, a new man and gives him a new credit and capacity. And friends, can I tell you this morning, that's exactly what Jesus did. Our relationship to him as the lawgiver, as the judge, and as the ruler, he, had, he has within his full rights to punish us for the laws that we've broken and the things that we've done. But he grants us through his sacrifice today, a pardon. He grants us a way to extinguish all guilt as if the offense has never happened. We can stand today as a new creation in Christ. I hope this message never gets old to you. I hope these ideas don't become white noise because where would we be without Jesus Christ, our advocate, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves? He was and is our substitute. We're gonna take the bread and the cup together like we've done the past several weeks. So hit pause if you need to, go get some juice uh, and some, something to, a cracker to take communion with. Let's do this together. Let's take the Let's take the bread. Father, we take the bread today. Jesus, we thank you that you were broken for us. We have broken your commandments. We have 
We have a broken system of justice. We have broken rulers, but you came to make all that, to change all that. You came and showed us the way. We thank you for your broken body today and we take it. Father, we take the cup today. We take your blood that blots out. It removes the sin and the stain of guilt. Creates us anew today. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Father, I pray for those watching, those listening today. If there's any that stand guilty before you, they've not confessed their sin. They've not accepted the pardon that you've given. I pray that they would respond today with faith. They would believe in you and they would repent. They would turn from their wicked ways and say, I need you. They would fall upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus. I pray for them today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. Church, thank you so much for joining us today. Look, this we're coming up on Easter week. It's gonna be a great week. We invite you. There's so many ways for you to join us. Good Friday, Saturday night, Sunday. I encourage you to come. If you can, come be in the house. We're social distance. Uh, we're doing the best we can to be safe. But I, I would really love to celebrate Easter with you. Of course, you can always watch us right here at 10 a.m. Easter Sunday next week. We love you, church. We'll see you soon.